0: You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer powered, listener supported.
1: Community Radio from South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones.
2: And I'm Lucinda Larnik. This is the WFHB Local News 4, Thursday, April 1st, 2021.
1: This week we present a four-part WFHB news special where we revisit the stories we've covered over the last year. We selected four areas of reporting which include homelessness in Bloomington, the coronavirus pandemic, social justice reporting and environmental stories.
2: In our fourth installment of this series we focus on environmental reporting. We present a story on a lawsuit against the Indianapolis Power and Light which claimed that the company has been violating the Clean Air Act. We also cover other environmental stories we worked on the past year. All that and more in today's edition of the WFHB Local News, the environmental
1: edition. In September of 2020, WFHB correspondent Katrine Bruner submitted a story on a lawsuit against Indianapolis Power and Light which alleged that the company had violated the Clean Air Act. In this series, you will hear from our expert source, Janet McCabe, who is now Joe Biden's nominee for Deputy Administrator of the United States Environmental Protection Agency, along with Kerwin Olson, Executive Director of Citizens Action Coalition. We turn to correspondent Katrine Bruner for more on the story.
3: after the lawsuit was filed, IPL announced their compliance with EPA's allegations and said that they would reduce their emissions at the Petersburg plant. Following this, EPA announced that Morgan County's air quality is officially within federal standards. The lawsuit has sparked interest on how the switch from coal to natural gas will have a significant effect on the air quality and the health of the surrounding community in Indianapolis. Coal-fired power plants, such as IPL, have been contributing to a nationwide issue of air pollution. In the past decade, coal has been the fastest-growing energy source in the world. According to ncoal.org, between the years 2001 and 2010, the world consumption of coal increased by 45%. Kerwin Olson of Citizens Action Coalition and Janet McCabe of IU's Environmental Resilience Institute spoke out about the murkiness of government regulation for power plants and how that can affect not only the state but the country in terms of pollution and human health and enforcement for these companies.
4: It's absurd that a corporation could be allowed to violate uh, their permit uh, that frequently, that often, uh, and really face uh, you know, no consequences as a result. It's a sad, sad state of affairs for the regulatory regime, not only in Indiana, but also in the country as a whole.
5: And those situations can lead to a lot of extra pollution that might have been prevented if the source had gone through a permitting process.
3: Filed by the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Indiana, the complaint stated that IPL, quote, failed to obtain the necessary permits and install the controls necessary to reduce emissions that damage human health and the environment." End quote. Details of the complaint made for violating the Clean Air Act include evidence of notices of violations that the EPA made to IPL in September of 2009, September 2015, and February of 2016. The utility released comments to IndyStar, stating, quote, While IPL believes the actions at issue were taken in full compliance with the Act and applicable permits, it entered into the settlement agreement to resolve EPA's claims and avoid uncertainties associated with litigation, quote. On December 9th of last year, the Indianapolis Power and Light Company announced that they would be shutting down two of their biggest units at the Petersburg superpolluter coal plant by the year 2023. The EPA recognized these plans and has explained that if IPL retires the two units before July 1st of 2030, then it will not need to install a new pollution control device mentioned in the consent decree. The settlement made Monday is subject to a 30-day public comment period on the department's website and will still need final approval by the court. Executive Director of Citizens Action Coalition, Kerwin Olson, spoke on behalf of the organization and explained how the lawsuit affects not only the companies and organizations involved, but also the state and health of Hoosiers and the environment.
4: A permit, it only matters if somebody's checking, you mm-hmm. know, and frequently with air permit violations, those violations are, you know, initially noticed because of the opacity of smoke coming out of a smokestack you know the oversight is is pretty lax if you will not enough uh, air monitors set up uh, not enough inspections and uh, for the most part our regulatory regime in indiana is uh, a self-regulated regime if you will it's it's sort of a trust with very little verify
3: olson explained to me the reason why coal is not the most efficient and even cheapest source of energy now with the future looking more green than ever
4: There's uh, the carbon emissions, uh, methane emissions, and the impact on climate change. Indiana certainly has played a large role in exacerbating climate change over the years with our reliance on coal. That doesn't include the uh, SOx and NOx and other toxic air emissions being emitted that cause uh, significant problems uh, with asthma, breathing difficulties. There's other toxic metals that are emitted into the water that pollute our waterway.
3: According to Greenpeace, coal is the single largest contributor to climate change, with one-third of all global carbon dioxide emissions coming directly from burning coal. Power plants that burn coal have been contributing to the air and water pollution for decades, which leads to many negative health effects for humans.
4: Coal-fired power plants are dirty, antiquated, and there's better ways to generate energy that first and foremost are Cheaper for customers, uh, better for our health, and better for our environment. Coal is the worst of the worst, if you will, and it's Mm -hmm. time to get rid of it.
3: In the early 1900s, oil and natural gas became competitors with coal, being cleaner and easier to transport and store. By the mid-1900s, oil and gas began being widely used in space heating, electric power generation, and transportation fuels. Alternatives to coal-powered energy include solar and wind power, the two most popular renewable energy sources to date. Fortunately, Indiana has been on the move to pivoting away from coal recently, Olson said. In June of this year, Vectran Energy announced their plans to switch to renewable energy for power generation, and only being 20 percent coal-based in just a few years. The company provides electricity for roughly 145,000 Hoosiers in southwestern Indiana. NIPSCO Energy also recently announced their plan to be 100% coal-free by 2028. Olson explained that the transition from coal energy to cleaner fossil fuels is largely one due to economics and a higher demand rising for renewable energy. In terms of the lawsuit, he said it seems that this is pulling IPL away from coal more than EPA's demands.
4: So we're seeing Coal plants retire early across the state of Indiana largely because they're no longer the least cost resource to serve customers. And so what's going to have implications for IPL is the fact that, you know, we're in the midst of an energy transition largely driven by economics. Coal is now uh you know one of the most expensive options and and we're rightly uh phasing it out. And so it's really the the, the marketplace economics uh that's driving these coal plant closures above all else.
3: Director of Indiana University's Environmental Resilience Institute and professor at IU McKinney School of Law, Janet McCabe, provided her educated insights on the subject. McCabe has spent a career in air quality, environmental regulation, and policy, having worked at IDEM for air quality and the U.S. EPA Office of Air and Radiation. McCabe stated that air pollution has been in communities and in Indiana since the country moved into the industrial age, and explained how creating laws such as the Clean Air Act in 1960 to protect public health and the environment has created, quote, a really clear but pretty flexible and workable framework for the federal governments and state governments to work together to reduce air pollution in states across the country, end quote.
5: These laws, which lead to things like permitting programs and rules that set standards and expectations on what industry can emit um, and how they're supposed to check that and how they're supposed to be transparent to do that, have really improved air quality in our state immeasurably um, over the last 50 years. Although we still have areas of the state that don't meet federal health standards for air pollution. And we have sort of micro areas of air pollution and there are new pollutants that people weren't thinking about in 1970, including the climate related pollutants like carbon dioxide. So um, we still have a ways to go, but we have these important laws in place that help us make sure that people are doing the right thing and not burdening the public with health and environmental impacts uh, without doing as much as possible to reduce those.
3: In the lawsuit, EPA made allegations that IPL was committing two types of violations. One, that the company made changes at the facility that should have been gone through permitting review, and two, that when emitting pollution, they violated the opacity limit, which is how much smoke a factory or power plant can emit. McCabe stated that they are, quote, both important and serious requirements, end quote. McCabe explained the importance of having enforcement present with issues that have to do with damage to the environment.
5: You know, enforcement is important. It's good to see uh, the government moving forward to settle these violations. Every enforcement case is different and very fact specific. So it's very hard for me to say. The penalty is just right or too much or too little, so I can't really comment on that. Settlements are supposed to, or enforcement actions are supposed to, do what they can to correct the environmental harm that happened, but also provide a disincentive for the company to violate again in the future. And systems allow for companies to, instead of paying all of the potential fine money in fine money, to use some of that, or uh, actually they have to use more if they're going to do something other than pay a fine, to do something good to help reduce air pollution or address um, air pollution in the location.
3: The lawsuit includes a penalty in the form of $1.5 million and building an alternative energy source on the property and buying property and giving it to the Patoka National Wildlife Refuge. In terms of fairness, McCabe said that she questions whether the penalty is enough to make up for years of pollution damage.
5: when the government does these consent decrees, they have to put them out for public comment and I don't know whether anybody's going to comment on it but if if I were going to comment on it, the kinds of things I would want to look into is does this penalty seem in line with other penalties that the agencies have levied for these kinds of violations and as i said that's that's awfully hard for uh civilian to determine because these things are so fact-specific. You know, the way that power generation is going these days is that fossil-fired plants, coal-fired plants are moving away from coal and they're (laughs) moving towards renewable energy. And so if IPL planning to move away from these coal units anyway and into these renewable energy, is this something they were planning to do anyway? In which case, it's not that much of a penalty for them, right? Because it's something they were they were planning to do anyway.
3: McCabe went on to ask the question of whether the community was involved in the lawsuit before making final or more final decisions.
5: The other question that I would have is, did the agencies consult at all with the communities around this plant in determining these supplemental environmental projects? And were people comfortable, you know, did people agree that these were Um, good things or were there other things that the local community might have put on the table as worth considering in terms of supplemental environmental
3: projects? And I don't know the answer to that either. When looking at the big picture with air pollution, McCabe explained why it is so important for everyone to learn about and how it affects not only the people near a power plant, such as IPL, but just people living in a modern society that has come to terms with its high pollution since the start of the Industrial Revolution.
5: We all benefit from electricity. We use it all the time. It's really important for modern society. But we're all affected by the pollution from these plants. And some people are affected more than others. So the people who live near these plants are more affected by the day-to-day air pollution. And, you know, when you said, is this enough to make up for the violation, said it isn't. Well, the extra sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxides that people breathe during these time periods and the asthma attacks they had, or wh- however it affected them, you you can't get those back, right? They they happened; it's gone. So a really important thing is that enforcement is there to make sure that companies don't do this in the future, and that other companies see that the environmental cop is on the beat. And if they don't comply with the laws, that somebody will catch them and make them fix it and make them pay a penalty. So that's a fairness thing for other companies that aren't working hard to comply with the laws. So it's important for people to know about this. It's important for people to know that an important role of government is to watch over these plants because people, regular people, there's no way for them to tell. It's not like You know, you can see on the highway if somebody's speeding, everybody can sort of tell whether somebody's speeding. A a regular person looking at a power plant would have no idea whether they were complying with the law or not. So you need um, the government to do that, and then you need
3: them to follow through. McCabe went on to explain that although government enforcement is important, it is also critical that the community affected by lawsuits such as this have the rights and availability to voice their concerns and opinions.
5: But the government processes should be as transparent as possible, too, so that citizens have the ability to make their own judgments about whether government is doing a good enough job. And so the public comment process is really important there. And if organizations like yours aren't covering these stories, how is the general public going to know that there's a comment period out there? They're not. So so that would be my answer.
3: The future of renewable energy looks promising, and the fear of climate change alone has motivated many government officials to support renewable energy projects with incentives and has pushed companies such as IPL to make the transition as well. Assuming IPL follows this trend of going towards renewable energy, they could be contributing to a brighter future for the health of new generations. For WFHB, I'm Katrine Bruner. Thanks for listening.
2: In March of 2020, WFHB Assistant News Director Sydney Foreman covered the City of Bloomington's plan to demolish the Griffey Lake water treatment plant, which had been abandoned since 1996. Sydney Foreman has more.
6: The Griffey Water Treatment Plant was built in 1925 to provide water to the city of Bloomington. The plant collected water from Griffey Lake and was treated to become safe drinking water for the community. The plant later closed in 1996 when Bloomington's population outgrew the size of the Griffey Lake's reservoir. The building has been sitting abandoned since. In 2019, the Indiana Daily student reported, quote, the Griffey Water Treatment Plant was decommissioned for 23 years, but is costing the city hundreds of thousands of dollars in cleanup because of mercury released by trespassers." End quote. The City of Bloomington Utilities discovered mercury contamination at the site first in 2017. Along with mercury, the site has also been known to contain asbestos and PCB contaminants James Hall is the assistant director of environmental programs at the Bloomington Utilities Department. He said mercury contamination is most likely due to vandalism.
7: The building would get vandalized. People would break into the building and vandalize. Um, and certain equipment in the building, like um, electrical switches and some of our the old flow meters had mercury in them that helped them operate. And when people would vandalize those, uh, mercury would get onto the ground. And we went in and we have cleaned it up. But there is still some low levels in the, like, the concrete of the building. And then there were also some piping that, like, would move mercury around to those different instruments. And um, that, those were broken. That's kind of where some of the stuff on the outside came from.
6: Hall said today there is still mercury contamination on concrete surfaces in the building and in the soil around the building. He said no mercury is leaking from the plant and the contaminants in the soil are stable in the ground. In July of 2018, the city of Bloomington Utilities implemented strict security at the treatment plant site. The city's news release from that time of implementation reads, quote, according to the World Health Organization, exposure to mercury, even small amounts, may cause serious health problems, particularly in utero and early life. Mercury may have toxic effects on the nervous, Digestive and immune systems, and on lungs, kidneys, skin, and eyes. The public is urged to stay away from the Griffey facility to protect their health. Trespassers on the Griffey plant property may be subject to arrest and hazardous material decontamination procedures. Therefore, keeping the public out of the plant is for their own safety and a speedy cleanup. Hall spoke about some of the security enforcement.
7: Um, we continuously upkeep the fence. We've had a fence around it the whole time, and people just cut it down. And it's a you know a, a regular six foot fence with some barbed wire at to the top of it. Um, but since July of 2018, we've had 24 hour, 24 seven security at the site. Uh, we've had multiple lights installed um, to make sure we're keeping people out of there.
6: There is a strong enforcement to keep community members out due to health risks but Hall claimed there are no serious environmental impacts. However, soil contaminated by mercury could grow vegetation to be eaten by animals, which then has potential to enter the food chain causing ecosystem contamination. Hall said the city is working with the Indiana Department of Environmental Management and the Environmental Protection Agency on the federal level to clean up the contamination.
7: Um, Like I said, the the mercury isn't... Uh, moving through the soil at all, and that was our only concern uh, with um, outside contamination. There were some old transformers there that had PCB oil, and those got cleaned up, I believe, either in 2017 or 18, early 18. I'm not positive on the date of that, but nothing, like I said, we've installed multiple uh, monitoring wells around the facility, and we haven't seen any contaminants move there. So uh, once we complete the demo of the building and the soil excavation, uh, Item and EPA is going to be satisfied, and we'll do confirmation sampling again once all that's taken up. All that stuff is taken up. We'll do sampling again to confirm that we've got all the um, contamination that was there. Hall said
6: all contaminated soil will be dug out and shipped to the appropriate hazardous waste disposal facilities. The city is also working to dispose of PCB contaminants in the plant.
7: Um, the PCBs that's remaining in the building and causing issues with disposal. Um, is actually in the paint. It's not a liquid. Um, back at that time, IDEM told us this, and when we tested the paint, um, they said it's fairly new development. Um, people were using PCBs in paint to help. It's called a plasticizer. It helps the paint, like, be on curved surfaces and still stick and stay on there. IDEM kind of keyed us into that, and so we started sampling all the piping and other uh, painted material that we had inside the building.
6: Hall said, the specificity of contamination will determine where certain parts of the plant will be sent for their appropriate disposal processes.
7: So there's there's different kinds of waste. So there's what's called TOSCA, uh, Toxic Substance Control Act waste. So that that's where just like things that are have PCBs in them, um, we'll take that to Rochdale to Heritage Environmental Landfill, uh, that's in Rochdale, Indiana. Um, so any material that has just PCB contamination. Uh, that will go there, and then any material that has PCB and um, RICRA um, Resource Recovery and Conservation Act um, material in it, um, that will that will go to uh, Belleville, Michigan, to a facility owned by U.S. Ecology, their hazardous waste disposal facility uh, company as well.
6: Hall said the city plans to return healthy soil to the area and plant native vegetation once demolition is complete. He said the city will also maintain ownership of the water treatment plant property.
7: The reservoir isn't big enough to provide potable water to the city, but it is large enough that we could still hook back up into the system to provide fire suppression for if we lost um, water um, in the city. And we've talked about putting a concrete pad that we could put what they call a package plant. It's basically a plant that comes in like a cargo container. Some people call them connexes. Um, that houses pumps and some treatment uh, for water that you would we would just we'd put um, piping over into the into the reservoir and we'd run it through that package plan and be able to pump it right into our system to provide fire suppression.
6: Hall said, unless the city sees a fire suppression emergency, the space is to remain lush with native vegetation and contaminant free. For WFHB, I'm Sydney Foreman.
1: On Friday, March 12, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency announced an $11.9 million cleanup plan at the Martinsville Superfund site. WFHB correspondent Alex Dieterer read that report.
8: On Friday, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency announced an $11.9 million cleanup plan for the Pike and Mulberry Streets Superfund site in Martinsville. According to a news release, the EPA's cleanup plan will address soil and groundwater contamination caused by industrial and dry cleaning chemicals, which were, quote, illegally dumped and mishandled in the late 1980s, end quote. The cleanup plan will tackle contamination of tetrachloroethylene, or PCE, in the groundwater. It will also address trichloroethylene, or TCE, gases in the soil. The EPA says it preferred to use a chemical oxidation method, an environmental remediation technique to reduce contaminants. On May 24, 2018, during the Daily Local News, former News Director Wes Martin asked Dr. Diane Henschel, an environmental toxicology expert, what PCE can do to the human body.
9: So what does it do? So it does depend, and the data that we have comes from both air and drinking water exposure. So please realize that. And there's two kinds of exposure. There's the short-term exposure, and then there's the longer-term exposure. And they're going to have different effects. So, for example, a more typical short-term exposure is going to be related to the nervous system. So some people get headaches or queasy from it. Um, You can get disorientation or dizziness from it. You could be irritable from it. If you have a longer-term but not very long-term exposure, especially through the air, you couldn't, or even potentially in drinking water, but most often through the air for this, could be seeing memory deficits or concentration problems. Um, It could be affecting your sleep. It could affect your ability to walk a little bit. It can give you what's called ataxia, so your movements aren't quite as smooth. You could have delayed reaction times. And for longer term exposure, you could end up with some peripheral neuropathy. Your nerves could actually start being damaged, directly damaged by it. For longer term exposure, we're talking about effect on a whole variety of different organs. So liver, because liver does the processing. Of it, kidney, which is where a lot of it is removed. Um, It affects the cardiovascular system and causes like heart arrhythmia. That could be a short term or a longer term effect. It can cause pulmonary edema. That's at least not very short term. Um, And it can have reproductive effects as well as causing cancer.
8: Hoosier Action, a local nonpartisan advocacy group, hosted a town hall on the Superfund site in October 2020. Town Hall moderator Tasha Coppinger discussed the health impacts of contaminated sites in Morgan County.
0: Morgan County has, um, according to the CDC, has the highest rates of cancer in our state. There are four contaminated sites that we know of in Martinsville alone that are um, beneath people's homes. These contaminants have PCE and TCE. Um, which are chemicals that are known to cause kidney cancer, non-Hodgkin lymphoma, cardiac effects, and bladder cancer. Um, And there's evidence linking them to leukemia, liver cancer, multiple myeloma, rectal cancer, impaired immune system functions, um, various neurological and neurobehavioral effects, um, and severe generalized hypersensitivity skin disorder. Um, as well as um, kind of being uh, suspected of causing multiple other effects.
8: The EPA will hold a virtual public forum on Zoom to learn more about the cleanup and to develop community-based recommendations.
7: You've
2: been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's show was produced by Catherine Bruner, Sidney Foreman, Alex D'Andra, and Cade Young.
1: Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Benedict Jones.
2: And I'm LeSindra Lalik. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast at wfhb.org.
1: The WFHB Local News is available as a podcast. Just search our call letters, WFHB, wherever you find your podcasts. Subscribe there and never miss another local news program.
2: Stay tuned for Big Talk with Michael Glab, coming up next on WFHB Radio.